This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Prison gangs wield a lot of power, not just inside a prison's walls, but outside as well. Some officials suspect one gang, the 211 crew, was behind the murder of Colorado Prison's chief Tom Clements. He was gunned down at his home in Monument three years ago. The killer was a parolee who later died in a shootout with police, and he was a member of the 211 crew. In the Denver Post, reporter Kirk Mitchell writes about two former officials with the El Paso County Sheriff's Department. They believe the evidence points to a conspiracy and that each and every person involved in the conspiracy should be held accountable. In his article, Mitchell writes that the two think a grand jury should be convened. If a grand jury was held, it would give them an opportunity to lay out the case, which they think is very strong. The only thing they don't have is a confession by the members of this prison gang. The El Paso County Sheriff says this is an ongoing investigation. We wanted to learn more about the 211 crew and how prison gangs operate. Georgia Leap is an anthropologist at UCLA. She studies gangs and is a policy advisor to Los Angeles on gang violence. And a Georgia, welcome to the program. Thank you. What are the origins of the 211 crew in particular? Well, there is sort of a founding story about the 211 crew that in 1995, Benjamin Davis was uh, being detained in Colorado, in Denver County Jail. And there he was assaulted and beaten by a large group of black inmates, um, supposedly, allegedly with a sock full of soap bars. And he was beaten so badly that his jaw was broken. And he sort of assembled a group of white inmates for protection and spread the rumor that they were an actual prison gang when they were not. They were a a small clique or a small group. And eventually the rumor became reality when more and more white inmates came to Benjamin Davis and said, hey, we want the protection. We want to join up. And this grew into what is now known as the 211 crew. You mentioned that that had its roots in a jail as opposed to a prison. So let's be clear that those uh, environments, jails, um, are, I suppose, just as ripe for this as prisons themselves. Well, I would actually say that jails are much more ripe for this in the short run. County jails traditionally are much more violent, much more unstable atmosphere where inmates do seek protection. Uh, And then once gangs or crews are organized, they do sort of spread to or consolidate within state prison systems. I know that's been very much the case in California, although prison gangs themselves become consolidated and almost corporate in the prison setting. Almost corporate? What do you mean by that? They're highly organized. Um, I originally have started spending had started spending a lot of time with street gangs, which are often, you know, disorganized crime. But once inside the confines of prison walls, let's be honest, there's a lot of time and a lot of ability to organize, I don't want to say effectively, but well. And so these gangs have to be operating within prison walls, able to exist within prison regulations while knowing how to circumvent them, and also able ultimately to communicate with individuals on the outside. We'll talk more about that, uh, the role of a prison gang outside of a prison or a jail, for that matter, in a bit. But a, a little more about the 211 crew. Where does the name come from, 211? The name comes from California Penal Code uh, 
211, which is for robbery. And I found it kind of strange that they use the California Penal Code, but let's be blunt. There's a romance about California and its gangs and its prison gangs as well. So that's what 211 comes from. And, you know, in a lot of correspondence, they used California Penal Code numbers as a means to communicate. So they would refer to 187, which is California Penal Code for murder as well. But that is where the numbers came from. Based on the story of the founding of the 211 crew, it sounds like some, perhaps all, prison gangs have a racial element to them. Is that true? Absolutely, yes, although there's some wiggle room on this. But they absolutely have a racial element. And in particular, uh, Latino and Mexican gangs sort of started this, and they are incredibly well organized inside of prison walls. Um, African-American gangs report different degrees of organization. In the California state prisons, they're often not as well organized as the Mexican and Latino gangs. But in other state prisons, they are extremely well organized. Um, But you will find that prison gangs break down very clearly along racial lines and also involve a lot of racial hatred. And the 211 crew remains a white gang. In fact, I, I think even white supremacist, doesn't it? Absolutely, yes. They do claim an association with the Aryan Brotherhood, and it they self-identify as a white supremacist gang. To its founder, once again, uh, Benjamin Davis, um, is he still around? What's his story? Yes, and he has a very tragic story. Um, and please don't think I'm saying this as a bleeding heart liberal. I'm saying it more as a scientist. Um, he was literally raised in a Petri dish to grow up to be a criminal. His father had been incarcerated. There was physical brutality. He was in the juvenile justice system. And this is a man that's now serving, I believe, 106 years. I can't be precise, but just an insurmountable number of years in prison. He will be in prison for the rest of his life. And I think he's in isolation. Yes, he is in isolation or solitary confinement or whatever you might consider it. Um, I know lifers who refer to that as the other death penalty. Hmm. And this leads us to the question of how sealed an environment a prison or a jail is. Um, To what extent does a prison gang in what we imagine is a very fortified environment uh, able to communicate with the outside and perhaps in the case of Colorado's prison's chief, to organize an outside action, perhaps a killing. And again, that's speculation at this point. Correct. This, These are all allegations, and I do want to offer that caveat. But I must say, prison walls are remarkably porous, no matter how high the security, no matter even if we are talking about a supermax institution. And this gives cold comfort to the public, but I think we have to be very, very honest about this. Communication does travel both ways. Drugs travel into prison. Any and all form of Orders for hits can be made from prison that can occur on the street. And sometimes, sadly, it's found that prison guards aid and abet these kinds of communications. I'm I'm also very well aware that on a weekly basis, um, calls are made from contraband cell phones that prisoners acquire within prison walls. So it's really quite extraordinary. I, For example, um, I know several individuals who are inmates on death row 
who obtained cell phones while they were on death row. Now, they were eventually found to have the cell phones and they were put into solitary confinement. But what I can tell you is they got those cell phones in their hands on death row in a high-security prison in the state of California. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with anthropologist at UCLA, Georgia Leap. She's author as well of Jumped In, What Gangs Taught Me About Violence, Drugs, Love, and Redemption. She is a policy advisor on the issue of gang violence in and outside of prisons, we should say, to the city of Los Angeles. And we're speaking with her at about the three-year anniversary mark of the murder of Colorado's prison's chief, at the hands of a man who was a member of a prison gang, the 211 Crew. And there is some frustration among former officials in El Paso County, where the murder took place, uh, that more members of the 211 Crew have not been implicated in the killing. I think what uh, you described for us at the beginning was that prison gangs serve a need for inmates, uh, the need for protection in the case of Benjamin Davis, who founded the 211 crew after an assault. Is that the extent of what prison gangs do for its members? No, I think there's much more. I think that there's kind of a nuance in terms of the needs that they serve. There is a need for association. There is a need for kind of what are called cellies or or associates or people that you feel bonded with within the prison walls. Um, these individuals also do receive contraband. They receive drugs. They receive cell phones. They receive food. They receive any and all sorts of things within the prison walls. And, you know, prison is a desperately, desperately unhappy and uncomfortable place. Their rehabilitation does not go on inside of prison walls. And this is I'm using this word advisedly. This is the kind they also supply the sort of recreational activities, and that's a strange way to put it, but that prisoners often need. So it's protection, it's association, drugs, communication, you name it, they offer it there behind the prison walls. I mean, saying rehabilitation is not going on behind prison walls, that's painting with a rather broad brush, isn't it? I think corrections officials in this state would disagree. Yes, and I do have to also say one of the tragedies with Mr. Clements was that he was a very progressive leader who did believe that there needed to be rehabilitation, that both the physical and mental health needs of prisoners needed to be attended to. Colorado and Missouri, I might add, where interestingly enough Mr. Clements came from, those are two states that have an enviable record in trying to institute some rehabilitative practices. I'm sad to say that California is attempting to at this point, but we have also in the past sadly lagged behind. And I think that's why I make – I have that kind of emphatic uh, attitude about it. I still think that we are woefully falling short of any kind of rehabilitation in a systematic way in our United States prison system in, in the different states. Given the communication that you said could occur – uh, between an inmate who is in prison and others on the outside. Um, is it logical, is it plausible to you that a hit, a, m- a murder, could be orchestrated from members of a gang on the inside uh, with perhaps former members on the outside? Absolutely, yes. In fact, there are extensive accounts of this going on in California with the Mexican mafia. There's a 
an excellent book, The Black Hand by Chris Blatchford, that details how hits were ordered from inside prison walls on uh, individuals on the outside. And certainly the Mexican mafia and other uh, Mexican gangs have had that reach in the state of California. Um, and it's also – that's what I'm the most familiar with, but it's also been documented in other places. So it's not only plausible, it has occurred. Do women join gangs? Yes, they do. Uh, in fact, that's going to be the subject of my next book. Women traditionally have not been seen as gang members, but their numbers and their profile in terms of gang membership is rapidly increasing. Um, and they take very active roles. They're often shooters. They're often soldiers. And interestingly, there's a subset of gang members who are lesbians, who are women, who gang members, despite homophobia surrounding gay men, um, Many gangs are willing to accept lesbians as very active members as well as um, straight females. So the composition gender-wise of gangs is changing as is the prison population of gang-associated women. Hmm. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. And as I said, it is very sad what happened to Mr. Clements. I still think of this. It was a tragic occurrence. Three years ago this month, Georgia Leap is an anthropologist at UCLA, author of Jumped In, What Gangs Taught Me About Violence, Drugs, Love, and Redemption. When we come back, making art more accessible to people with disabilities. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's proof music can help people with memory loss, play a dementia patient's favorite song, and it can light up their brain. They may start to recall events in their lives. So what happens when you take people with dementia to a concert? CPR arts reporter Corey Jones tells us about a new program doing just that in northern Colorado. Hal Squire loves one thing above all else. Golf. <laughs> Squire takes out his golf clubs at his home in Loveland. Oh, I just like to play all of them, really. <laughs> Driving and putting and chipping. You still putt pretty good, don't you? Yeah, yeah. That's Hal's wife, Sue. You'll find golf clocks, books, and calendars inside their house. And there's a good chance golf is on the TV. The Squires even named their cat after golf terms, Birdie Mulligan. That's Birdie. Hal says he started golfing when he was 12. He's now 82, and he still gets out a few times a week when the weather's nice. In fact, it was golf that led to the first signs of Hal's memory loss. He'd come home from golf and he wouldn't know who he'd played with. I remember one time he didn't realize that you had to plug in the lawnmower to charge the battery. He didn't understand the function of things. Sue says he also started to get lost on his way to meet friends for lunch. And one day he came home from golf and he was really kind of upset about it and he said, I think I'm going crazy. And that was my clue when I said, let's go see the doctor. Doctors diagnosed Hal with Alzheimer's disease seven years ago. He's now one of 65,000 who live with the disease in Colorado. Hal forgets what day it is. He can't follow sports games very well. He doesn't drive. And Sue had to take over things like the family's finances. You're the responsible one, and it's kind of a lot to lay on one person. <laughs> but Sue feels lucky. Her husband's progression has been slow, unlike others who develop Alzheimer's at a younger age. While some struggle with severe depression, Hal is mild-mannered and easy to please. And he joins Sue for book club and sewing club. 
She also takes Hal to a support group that offers activities. They do things like sing and go for bus rides. Sue says it stimulates his mind. And I believe people need to see that it doesn't have to make you stay at home all the time. Hello. Hi. Thank you. Thank you. We're entering the concert hall right now. It's a recent Saturday night in Fort Collins. Hal and Sue are at the Lincoln Center for a Fort Collins Symphony concert. The concert is unique because of who's in the audience. Hal is part of a group called B Sharp, which launched last fall. The program takes 30 dementia patients and their primary caregivers to the symphony. Angel Hoffman chairs B Sharp. It's more than attending just the symphony. It actually involves uh, community engagement. People come to a reception prior to the symphony. Hoffman says it's important to offer an outlet to caregivers, too. Caregivers often become isolated in their caregiving role as a person progresses through their dementia. Friends don't come around as often. They may be hesitant to go out into the community and go to dinner. So B Sharp gives them a chance to get out. Participants get tickets to five concerts during the season. They don't pay a thing. Sue Squire says when they heard about the program through a support group, she was on the fence. To be honest, I wasn't sure at first it was for us. Symphony orchestra kind of scared me. It sounds highbrow and um, a little out of our realm. But when she went to the first concert with Hal, they enjoyed the music. They listened to the conductor talk about the work, compositions by Beethoven and Brahms, and they met other B-sharp participants. It was just very friendly and down-home and comfortable. Hal even stayed awake for the whole event, something Sue couldn't believe. Here's the thing. These end up being long nights. This is Hal. You see, the B-sharp program also tests the dementia patients before and after the concerts. He's going to get you all set up, okay? Okay. So have a seat. The tests assess mood, memory, and attentiveness. Hal sits across from Q. Reem Kong. She's a Ph.D. student at Colorado State University. She asks Hal a series of questions about his mood. What about happy? I'm happy. <laughs> I see definitely feel. Right? I think that's pretty. Yeah. Then she moves on to a number sequence test. F7. F7. L. L. You can maybe mean number first and then letter go. F7L. Number goes first. Sue watches and sometimes tries to guide Hal when he doesn't understand. It's a little frustrating for me because I want to jump in and help him, but um, I probably helped more than I should have. Jenny Cross directs research at CSU's Institute for the Built Environment. She leads this study. Cross says music therapy is nothing new. This study is different because we're actually trying to study the impact of not just music on people, but the whole experience. Cross says that means ongoing tests in a social setting, like at the symphony. And again, it's as much about the caregivers as it is the Alzheimer's patients. The more we can do to help people, the better we're making the quality of life for everyone in the community. Cross says it's too early to draw any conclusions from the research. But there are signs that the program already has an effect. Sue Squire says even though her husband, Hal, doesn't remember the concerts... I think it sharpens him up a little bit. I think it makes him more aware and stimulates him and might make him a little more so for the, even the following day or two. In fact, that happened after a recent Fort Collins Symphony concert. The Squires go to church every Sunday, 
And usually, Sue has to remind Hal. And I didn't say anything that morning, and he got up and knew we were going to church, so we had to get ready to go to church, and that was like, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Sue says it surprised her. Moments like this are few and far between. She knows there's no cure for Alzheimer's, so the squires just live in the moment, enjoying the simple pleasures, like music, and of course, golf. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News. Well, Alzheimer's and dementia are the focus as well of a theater company that casts performers with disabilities. The new show from Englewood-based Family Theater Company is called Taking Leave. And just as family has made its stage more accessible, it wants to make its productions more accessible to audiences with disabilities. And that requires some real changes in how they put on a show. Taking Leave is part of that effort. It opens this weekend, and we're joined by artistic director Bryce Alexander. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Taking Leave is by playwright Nagel Jackson. It premiered at the Denver Center, actually, in the late 90s. And it's about a professor, Elliot Prine, who has early-onset Alzheimer's. And he, quote, takes leave of reality and imagines a new world. Family partnered with the Alzheimer's Association for this production, I understand, because it's it's somewhat new territory for the company. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've, we've had performers who have traumatic brain injuries or learning disabilities, things that would prevent them from having the best experience with memorizing their lines. But it's very rare that we actually have the opportunity to talk about or encounter people with Alzheimer's in our daily lives, at least in in families' lives. And so we were able to partner with the Alzheimer's Association to do workshops and to learn more so that we could make sure we were presenting the disability appropriately on stage. Hmm. One aspect of this partnership, I understand, was improv. Mm -hmm. Um, Family actors... And people with early-onset Alzheimer's did exercises together and had conversations about the disease. Take us into that workshop. It sounds fascinating. Yeah, it was extraordinary. You know, there's so much information out there that says that uh, improv is valuable for lots of people, whether they have learning disabilities or Alzheimer's or dementia, whatever it might be. Why? Well, I think it allows people to access a part of their brain where the pressure of what comes next and the pressure of what was just doesn't matter. It's reacting in the now. Um, And so we we were able to invite these people into our rehearsal space and do these exercises. And what happened was extraordinary, which was that the personalities that were sort of hidden behind this fear of what was coming came out. We had one woman who was a teacher who, when we put her into a scenario where she just had to pretend to be a teacher again. And and she had early onset. And she had early onset. Yeah, exactly. She came out of her shell completely. And she had this hilarious sense of humor that you can tell sometimes gets buried when we start to worry about what's next. Um, And so for our performers specifically, it was so valuable to see that Sometimes we think about the end result of Alzheimer's, but there is still a journey that exists. And that's the journey that we can portray and that we all can relate to in the characters in the play. And you wanted to do that mindfully. You wanted to to play those characters appropriately. So what did you learn? Well, I think what we learned was actually a little scary, to be honest, which was that It's something that we all can relate to pretty easily. And you can see where people aren't sure that their their spouse or their parent has Alzheimer's, that it starts small, that these these tiny changes in habit can seem like, okay, you know, maybe we're just getting old. But the reality is it's a bad day. Exactly. They they got distracted. Exactly. Uh And so what we learned is that it's so much more relatable than 
sometimes we imagine in our heads. And that's really valuable for the play because there are some moments in the play that he is absolutely 100% cohesive of what's going on around him. And then there are other moments where he thinks he's going to be in a hotel and go swimming at the pool when he's really at home. This is the professor who's at the heart of the show, Taking exactly. Leaf, yeah, which is about to open at Family. It's the Englewood-based theater company that um, uh, employs actors with disabilities. And my understanding going forward is that you will pair up with a different uh, disabilities rights group or advocacy group for each new production. Yeah, the the idea is that the work we're producing is not only good entertainment value, but that there's great conversations happening with each show. So as we move forward, we're going to, to partner with as many different community councils or organizations, hospitals, whoever it might be, to talk about the issues related to the play. And so I can't tell you about next season, but you know, issues like developmental delay or PTSD. There are organizations out there that can help us talk about the themes in the play to have a greater understanding and conversation about what's being presented in front of us. What inspired that thinking? Well, you know, our mission is to inspire people to re-envision disability through professional theater. And for a long time, people sort of assumed that that meant that we were inspiring our actors to re-envision their own disabilities. And that's certainly part of it. But we didn't want to ignore our audiences. And how can we portray disability on stage if we can't even have people with disabilities in our audiences? And so if we're going to do the correct advocacy, then it seems like a natural step then to bridge the arts into our communities, which is who we should be serving anyway. So this is fascinating because you realized recently that theater might not be great as it currently is mounted for certain people with processing disorders, yeah. sensory processing disorders. That's so right. this, this may be a lesser known disability, but these are folks who are potentially very sensitive to sound and to light. Um, and you hosted the first ever Sensory Friendly Summit with the Lone Tree Arts Center. I guess to talk about this with some other arts groups as well. What did you, what did you learn? Well, it was amazing. You know, people often don't consider that there are families with autism or Down syndrome or sensory processing disorder who can't go out into the community as a family and experience culture. And so what, and why would that be well, for autism? For instance? Sure. Sir. Sometimes there, there might be a, a tick or, or an attitude that we wouldn't traditionally consider appropriate in a, in a theater or that bright lights or flashing lights or the darkness of the theater can, can be scary and stimulating. Mm. Um, and so it can sometimes be perceived as disturbing other audience members. And so how could you as a family go out and enjoy this culture when you're always concerned about what might be happening with whoever else is in your family? Right. Someone shooting you stink eye because of exactly. whatever the outburst is. And, exactly. Uh -huh. Exactly right. And so this summit was wonderful because what we learned is that all of the arts and culture organizations in Denver, we had more than 55 represented all of the large organizations, the Denver Center and the zoo. And we learned that Denver wants to be a really sensory-friendly place and that we can integrate these concepts of being sensory-friendly, which sometimes just means reducing crowd noise or providing a safe place where someone could go if they get stimulated, easy accommodations that everyone really does want to be able to serve that population. So would you hold another performance for those, those folks who have a sensory disorder or is it changing the environment so that any performance is kind of universalized? I think you try to do both. There are some degrees of 
sensory processing that can be managed just by providing a sensory guide, for example. So we try to publish a guide before every performance that just gives a list of sensory input that they might experience through the show. So and there they could aren't take surprises? That. Exactly, exactly. So there aren't surprises and they can self-select about which moments might be stimulating. And if they feel like it might be overstimulating, then they can go to the additional performance that's hosted specifically for them, which is more of a relaxed environment. And maybe where the tick is okay. Exactly. In fact, encouraged. A place where if you need to actually have your iPad out because you need that, that, that multi-focus you're welcome to have it out. And if that means that you can enjoy culture with your family and have that experience, then why not? Hmm. So is it your sense that these many other theatrical groups will start integrating this into their schedules? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we've seen a couple who've done it already down at the Pace Center in Parker, the Lone Tree Arts Center, who we partnered with on uh, the summit regularly produces sensory-friendly. You can go to the museums early in Denver, uh, the zoos, and everybody is doing their best to try to integrate these sorts of programs. And I, I know that as we continue to explore growth and programming over the next couple of years, which takes time, you are going to see a huge influx of programs specifically designed for these kinds of people. Is this being born in Denver, or are there conversations like this happening in theatrical communities around the country, around the world? I mean, is Broadway thinking this way? Yeah, you know, it actually, it got the limelight because TDF, which is the Theater Development Fund, on Broadway held an autism night for The Lion King. And it was sort of the first major application of this sort of sensory-friendly ideology. This was some time ago? This was uh, about uh, probably not even quite 10 years ago now, okay. but still relatively new. And Europe has been ahead of us for quite some time in a lot of disability advocacy ways. But in the United States, this conversation is definitely starting to pop up in cities around the country. And in fact, the city of Chicago is trying to host their own sensory summit to repeat what's happened in Denver so that they can try to engage their arts and culture organizations with their own local communities. We're speaking with uh, Bryce Alexander. He's artistic director of the Family Theater Company based in Englewood, which was founded to give actors with disabilities more opportunities. And Bryce, a more general question about the company. If you use particular pieces of theater as a way to get a conversation started about a particular disability, Mm -hmm. do you find that you have to write a lot of your own material to do that? Or are there many playwrights with lots of plays that tackle these kinds of subjects. Sure. We actually, we produce mostly mainstream work that you've heard of. Last summer, we produced Cabaret, which is so familiar and is, in fact, coming on a Broadway tour here soon. Um, and all we did was we represented a historical truth of the cabarets in Weimar-era Germany by setting it in the Blue Stocking, which was a club just like the Kit Kat Club, except for it was for people with disabilities of that era. That club actually existed. It actually existed, exactly. And so we were able then to fill the stage with our performers with disabilities and represent a historical accuracy of what was really happening in Weimar-era Germany. And we can make those those sorts of parallels between other disenfranchised groups and disability so easily that it doesn't have to be just about disability Mm. to have the conversation. And of course, what's so ominous is that people who had disabilities... Right. Uh, in that German regime exactly. did not fare well. So there's an there's an added level of ominous. Absolutely. And we have we had one we have one performer, her name's Lucy Ruchus, who has uh, Parkinson's disease. And she played Fräulein Schneider. And there's a scene where she talks about 
how she needs to stay still. She needs to exist where she is and try to fight through because that's all she knows. And she's, of course, speaking in the play about being Jewish. But in our reality, it's being Jewish and having Parkinson's disease and having that excess meaning of having to stay still brings such a depth of understanding to the play like you'll never see anywhere else. And we can do that without changing a line. And there are obviously other plays you think that can adapt that way. Absolutely. Very quickly, how will you know this is working? The notion of adapting the theater and the experience it's a great question. Well, there's a couple different ways. One is obviously ticket sales. We're trying to make sure that we bring in people and that we can make sure new families are experiencing the arts. The other is that if the movement spreads to other theaters and we are able to provide opportunity with other organizations and continue those partnerships, I'd say we are having a very successful movement. Thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Bryce Alexander, Artistic Director of Family Theater Company which, as we said, was founded to give actors with disabilities more opportunities, and it's trying to do the same with audiences. Taking Leave, which focuses on early-onset Alzheimer's, opens Saturday at the Denver Center. Still ahead, the Ragamuffins, who sold newspapers in turn-of-the-century Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Broadway musical Newsies is on stage at Denver's Buell Theater, The show's heroes are a ragged bunch of boys who scrape together a living selling newspapers on the streets of 1800s New York. From Bottle Alley to the harbor, there's easy pickings guaranteed. Try any bag of bum or bubba, they almost all know how to read. It's a crooked game we're playing, one we'll never lose. Long as suckers. Denver had its own band of newsies around the same time. John Moore dug into their history. He's with the Denver Center for the Performing Arts, and he spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. John, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Give me a picture of what Denver was like as a newspaper town back then. Well, if you can imagine Denver at the turn of the century, you're looking at a time when there was no TV, no radio, no cars. Uh, Denver Telephone Exchange had three numbers. There were books and there were newspapers for your entertainment. And so people looked to the newspapers not only to give them the news, but to amuse them. So this was what we used to call the golden age of yellow journalism, where nobody really expected the newspapers to be telling them the truth. And there were these newsboys shouting from the street corners. What was that like? Well, you had kids as young as five years old. You can imagine a kid on every street corner selling up to 11 different newspapers that were being printed at the time in Denver. And these kids made anywhere between 10 and 20 cents a day. But uh, the working conditions that they had were deplorable. They oftentimes we think of them as, uh, you know, shouting out extra in the middle of the afternoon. But most of the work that they did was actually at night. If you think about how the big newspaper of the week is the Sunday paper, Those came off the presses at about 1130 at night, and those kids would just be glomming and crowding up around places like the Denver Post to buy their bundle of 100 newspapers, and they would go straight to Larimer Square, and they would try to find the guys who were walking out of the whorehouses or the bars, and they found that 
the best tips that they would get during the week were from the ones who were a little bit tipsy. So <laughs> they they say that um, newsboys made as much money between 11 p.m. on Saturday and 11 a.m. on Sunday as they did for the rest of the week. So that means you had these 5- to 14-year-old boys who were basically out in the middle of the night. Where were these boys from? Were, did they have families? Where were they living? Well, in my initial research, I found that most of them were, were orphans and runaways and cripples. There were a couple of newsboy homes right now where Brooks Tower is, was at the site of a mm. newsboy home, ironically enough, where the Four Seasons Hotel is right now. Right, right in downtown Denver. Right in downtown Denver used to be a newsboy home for about 300. But I also found that there were many kids who were from nuclear families, just dirt poor, and the parents would just make the difficult decision to say, hey, we need the money. So they didn't see anything wrong with it. They would just send their kids out into the middle of the night, and they would come back, and they would depend on that for part of their family income. They were making 10 or 20 cents a day, but that was enough to supplement their income, or could they live on it if they weren't living with their families? Well, the ones who lived with families were, were contributing to their family income, and then the rest were just going back to the to the homes. And so for most of them, they were just scraping by with a very meager existence. There was a study actually in the 1920s, sort of a demographic survey of who these kids were, and they found out that 54% of them were, were Jewish kids, which was surprising to me, and I don't really have an explanation for that. But there was a famous uh, quote in that article that said, uh, they were all ages and sizes, some were white and some were black, but they were all dirty. Were there news girls too, or just boys? There were not news girls until 1925 when uh, Mayor Stapleton, who the former airport was named after, signed an ordinance that basically outlawed the use of newsboys who were under the age of 12, but for the first time legalized the opportunity for news girls to um, sell papers, but they had to be 21. So we didn't really have news girls. We had news women. Hmm. And some of these newsies kind of beat the odds and eventually became prominent Denver residents. Yeah, there's some recognizable names. Uh, for people who lived in Denver for a number of years, they will recognize the Gart Sports Empire, mm. which is now morphed into Sports Authority. And that empire began with a, a newsboy who named Nathan Gart, who at the age of 12, he basically owned the corner of 16th and Lawrence Street. He was an entrepreneurial newsboy who realized at the time that uh, how profitable it could be to uh, buy watches and rings from his regular customers, and then he would mark them up and resell them. And he took the profits in 1928, and um, he opened up his first store selling fishing rods. And that turned into what became a retail empire. And you said Nathan Gart had a particular corner that he sort of owned. Was that what happened back then? There was absolutely a hierarchy that the Sopranos would appreciate. <laughs> These kids would work the corners, and, and if you owned a corner, you owned that corner. And so some of the lesser-known newsies would have to stretch out to less populated parts of downtown until they could work their way up the chain. These boys weren't just shouting headlines. They were also sort of street performers. So what you had is newsboys would do anything to raise uh, some money, and that might include screaming the headlines, but it also might mean doing a song and dance on the street corner. Basically, you had fairly elaborate minstrel shows that these newsboys would put together and rehearse, and people would gather around on street corners, and they would throw some change their way. So it really makes sense that a musical was made out of this part of our history. Absolutely. This is the underdog story of all time. You have the the, the musical newsies is based on the newsboy strike of 1899 in New York City, the real story of how these newsboys basically shut down Pulitzer and Hearst, 
the two most famous publishers in journalism history by going on strike. And if you're a fan of musicals, this will put a song in your heart and a tap in your step. In some ways, the story is about a bygone time in journalism. And uh, you were a newspaper reporter in Denver for a long time. Does it make you at all nostalgic for those days? It doesn't. It doesn't. That's a great question. When we honor the best in journalism every year, we call them the, the Pulitzer Prizes. And people must think that whoever Pulitzer is must have been the most honest, ethical journalist in the history of journalism. And it turns out that he was the leader of this colorful time in newspaper history when all the rules that we hold dear and the ethics and principles that we hold today were completely non-existent. This was a time when it wasn't about telling the truth. The Denver Post had an office building at 16th and Champa, and it had a nickname around town as the Bucket of Blood Hmm. for two reasons. One is because of its propensity for telling sensational stories, but also because the Denver Post took the extraordinary step of introducing red headlines into the newspaper as early as the 1920s. And by red headlines, you mean that the newspaper was literally using red ink for its headlines. That's so interesting. (laughs) If you're a journalist, we're under attack these days. Everybody thinks the media has a bias, and we're constantly defending the ethics of the profession. And to look back at a time like this, it's so much fun. But at the same time, you're seeing the era when everybody, when they said there was a bias in the media, you're darn right. There was, there was a bias in 340-point type. So we shouldn't romanticize the good old days of journalism. Well, I, I romanticized the good old days of journalism around the 1970s when we were <laughs> exposing Watergate and things like that. But the 1920s? Absolutely not. John, thanks for being here. Thank you very much for having me. John Moore's title is Senior Arts Journalist at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. You'll find a link to his blog post about Denver's Newsies at CPR.org. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The oil and gas industry here is suffering because of low oil prices. Just recently, two of the largest producers in Canna and Anadarko announced another round of layoffs. But what's bad for those companies is good for auction houses, where oil and gas producers sell off heavy equipment. CPR's energy reporter Grace Hood attended an auction. Auction day doesn't come around that often at Ritchie Brothers. Vice President Rob Giroux says one event takes months to put together. Every piece of equipment has to be cataloged and brought to this location. And these days, during an oil bust, there's a lot to sell. There's no doubt that the oil and gas downturn has... Uh, positively affected our business. Giroux watches the bidding from the back of Ritchie Brothers' massive auction theater. For each item, the whole bidding process happens in minutes. When a bid is launched, its number pops up on a large computer screen. The piece of equipment pulls up behind large glass windows at the front of the theater. And then the bidding just takes off. You'll see telescopic forklifts, for example, what we're selling right now. A lot of these have come from the oil and gas uh, market, but it's not limited to that market. 
Today, thousands of pieces of equipment will be sold, much of it to buyers outside of the oil and gas industry. Drew says the uptick started in 2015. In this Denver location, Ritchie Brothers actually reached a new volume record today. Nearly 4,000 items are for sale. The previous record was 2,500. We're still seeing um, a significant amount of oil and gas-related equipment. You just need to look out in our yard here. Every item auctioned today gets parked in front of Ritchie Brothers. Imagine a giant dirt lot with neatly parked rows of cranes or steamrollers. They get to try out the equipment, you know. Or excavators. In an excavator here, he's, he's moving the stick back and forth and, and moving the machine uh, from side to side to make sure that uh, everything is functional. In other words, try before you buy. Not everything here is from the oil and gas industry. We walk past shipping containers and street sweepers. Then we make our way to a row of giant rectangular tanks used for fracking. This is where we find Rich Millard from North Dakota. This is tragic for the oil industry. Millard says he's never seen an auction as large as this one. What brought him here was the promise of good deals. He wants to expand and build a new business idea. Millard recently launched a company that disposes oil field waste in a more environmentally friendly way. We're building the business and we're preparing for the next upswing in the oil industry. Angel Salazar runs a drilling business in New Mexico. Cash isn't as flush as it used to be. He had to lay off workers over the last year. But he says getting a good bargain could help him get a leg up for the next oil boom. For example, this tank here, when they build it, it cost uh, $75,000 each. I can probably buy them for 10000 right now. That's the kind of deals I'm looking for. With more than four decades in the oil business, Salazar says right now is a difficult time. This auction has the promise of good bargains. But if you buy stuff, will you actually be able to put it to work and recoup your expenses? That's a catch-22 many businesses are in right now. I can see a little light at the end of the tunnel. People are calling back and they want to do things. So hopefully we'll, uh, we'll get back going here in another two or three months. But there's going to be more pain before it's all over. The Energy Department recently lowered its estimate for the global price of oil this year, down to $34 a barrel. And continued low oil prices are expected to prompt more bankruptcies across the industry. It all adds up to more reasons why the auction business won't be slowing down anytime soon. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. You can see a video of the auction at CPRnews.org. Finally today, one of my favorite songs about this state is called Colorado River Song. It's by Renee Marie, who used to live here. She is back in town this weekend on tour with a new album, Sound of Red, and it includes this Colorado track. Oh, we are paddling down the Colorado River And we are singing a Colorado River song Yes, we are paddling down the Colorado River And we're singing a Colorado River song We're in our little canoe Just me and you Under a sky so Colorado River, and we're singing a Colorado River song. 
Renee Marie with Colorado River Song, featured on her new album Sound of Red. She performs in Aspen and Denver this weekend and then Boulder next week. Colorado Matters is now a full-hour podcast. You can sign up for it at cprnews.org, click Colorado Matters, and then subscribe to podcast in the audio player. Connect with us online by commenting at the bottom of articles on our website or find us on Facebook, CPR News, and Twitter at Colorado Matters. This is CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.